All right, go ahead and get your Bible, get it ready. I'm not going to announce the passage yet. I want to ask you some questions anyway, so we will be looking at the Bible. But uh, I want to give you some clues and see where you go. How about that? Well, this one might not help you a whole lot, but this particular book of the Bible, and particularly one of the men who is closely associated with this book of the Bible, have become uh, very, uh, I don't know the right word to use now, but uh, I, have, I have grown in great appreciation for both this book and this man, put it that way, in the last few years, just it just I guess just because of the way the Lord's worked in my life and various things. Prior to the last few years, I probably hadn't, you know, had as much uh, appreciation for that uh, as I should have. And my wife's not allowed to answer any or give anything out because she knows where we're going, I think, this morning. So, Debbie, you have to be quiet. So. <laughs> but anyway... This book of the Bible, by the way, is the book of the, it's an Old Testament book, so there you go, that, that starts narrowing it down. There's an Old Testament book, but this is the Old Testament book that is quoted, and this, this can be demonstrated statistically, it's quoted in the New Testament more often than any other book of the Old Testament. Anybody have an idea where that is? You are right. Now, Psalms is the longest book of the Bible, so in a way, maybe that helps give reason why it is quoted more often. There's more there to quote, perhaps, but uh, how many, a lot of times, you know, we, we, in, in, in the, uh, the Bible, of course, uh, probably most of you are aware that as the Bible was given originally by God, I mean, chapters and verses weren't there, all right? There's one book, of course, where you could say there's exceptions to that, and that is the Psalms, because the Psalms were given as individual units, all right? And uh, the Psalms uh, are songs. They were sung by Israel. Uh, really, it has to do with praises. In fact, the Hebrew word used for psalm is the idea of a praise. Um, but how many Psalms are there? Instead of saying chapters, how many psalms are there? 150. And again, by statistics, now I didn't come up with these statistics. I am using somebody else's math and stuff here. But uh, of the 150 psalms, at least 120 of them are quoted in the New Testament. So that's, it's, it's spread out throughout the, the book. You know, quite a, quite a few of them are uh, are referred to in the New Testament. In fact, somebody wrote this. I'm, I just uh, copied a couple quotes here, paragraphs to read. But the book of Psalms, this is, this is an introduction to the Psalms in, in a particular book, it says the book of Psalms is the most read, the most used, and the best known of all the Old Testament books. This book's special appeal it is its record of a wide variety of emotions and experiences that are shared by virtually all humans. The book speaks of feelings of joy, awe, gratitude, contentment, and love, as well as sorrow, guilt, hate, depression, despair, and fear. It describes experiences of celebration, 
birth and great blessing together with pain, loss, illness, exile, warfare, and death. And so the Psalms are, again, uh, as I said, in recent years, the Psalms have become far more precious to me than what I ever viewed them before. And uh, maybe that's just because as you get older, you experience more things in life and you relate to it more. I'm not 100% sure why. But uh, also, when you think of the Psalms, there's probably a particular person that I would think that should come to mind. Who would you think that is? David. And uh, the, uh, the Sunday evenings that... Uh, the book that, that John's been leading in, in uh, looking at that, you know, focuses mostly on, on David's life and, and, and that. And I have uh, actually really bec- have come to appreciate David uh, a whole lot more than I ever did. In fact, if I had to say right now anyway, my favorite Bible character would probably be, of course, apart from the Lord, but it would be David. And uh, David's life, I mean, when you think of David, there's probably a lot of mixed thoughts, mixed emotions, if you want to say, that come to your mind. I mean, on one hand, you could look at David or, you know, you think of David and think, okay, he was, he was a great man. He was, he's the only person in the Bible with the phrase, a man after God's own heart is attributed to him. Uh, he's, you know, the king. In fact, when you, when you, Study the historical books, you know, uh, particularly the First and Second Kings and and Second Chronicles, because First Chronicles is mostly about David. But when you look at those books, all the kings that that came on Israel, and then when when the kingdom divided after Solomon, Israel and Judah, all the kings are compared to who? I mean, David was the standard that kings were measured by. He wasn't the first king. Of course, Saul was the first king and, and all, but David was uh, the, the king, and he's the one that ever, all the others are compared to. Now, was David perfect? No. I mean, he was a great king. He was a great warrior. Uh, he was, he's certainly one that you could look at, guys, and say he was a man's man. Uh, on the other hand, he had some failures, didn't he? And uh, he... he um, a lot of people, of course, when they think of David, maybe a particular uh, failure of his is what comes to mind. Now, honestly, I think when I think of David, I don't, I don't think so much of his failures. Um, because it's interesting to me that although his sins that are recorded in the Scriptures, a couple of them are not very small sins, so to speak, but it's, it's interesting how that he still, although... He, he, you know, he was guilty of adultery and, and murder. I mean, those are pretty big things. I think the, the Catholics would consider those seven, car, or two of the seven cardinal sins, right? I mean, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, so those aren't very light things. It's not like he just happened to, you know. I, but then again, when you think of sin, sins, no matter what sin it is, it's wicked before God, right? Uh, but what I'm getting at is, the difference is with David, it's not like he ever turned from following the Lord. He had some moments where he, yeah, he, he had a lapse in his, in his spiritual life and committed sins, but he's never looked at in the scriptures as having turned from God. Um, and, and 
even after the fact, he's referred to in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. And, and the fact of uh, David's closeness to the Lord and um, uh, his, his um, uh, life, I think, again, being characterized as a man who walked with God and whose heart was after the Lord. Uh, think of this, all right? Who is, who is the one... All right, uh, you know, after with, God, with Moses, I mean, there's several people, several people that stand out in the Old Testament as, as those that were like monumental in, the, in, the, in Israel's history and in the start of something. And of course, you think of Abraham, you think of Moses, and to me, then you think of David. And uh, David, think of this, associated with David, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 1, that's where we're eventually going to get here. I wanted to try to kind of give a background of, of some of the things with the Psalms first. But with David, he, he had a desire to, to please God. He had a desire to worship God. He had a desire to see that others worship God. And that's what a lot of the Psalms are about. And um, when you think of David... Again, I think there's sometimes a lot of things about good things about him that we don't think about, right? Uh, in that, I mean, who was it that built the temple? Solomon. But do you realize, I mean, who is it that wanted to build the temple? David wanted to build the temple. And, you know, at first when he mentioned it to Nathan the prophet, Nathan said, sure, go ahead, you know, sounds like a good idea. Now I'm paraphrasing, but... Uh, and then, then God sent Nathan back to David and said, no, you can't, you can't do it, basically is the idea. You can't do it. You've shed a lot of blood. Um, and, and he shed blood fighting Israel's enemies, right, most of the time. And, uh, you know, you've shed, you've shed blood. You're not going to do that. But do you realize that all the stuff that was used, well, I say all, most all at least of the things that were used to build the temple were provided for by David. I mean, he spent his life from that point on, it seems, accumulating wealth that was used to build the temple and provide, gather materials and so on that were used to build the temple. So in essence, and, and think of this, who did God give the plans for building the temple to? It was to David. And David passes all that on, all that on to Solomon. When you think of David too, a lot of people think of him as being a not very good family man, which is probably true in a lot of ways. But I do think there's a good, a big exception to that. And I don't know as far as timing-wise how all, all this worked out. But but let me just throw this out there. I I believe that David realized that he had failed a lot in his family life, and he tried to make that right with Solomon. Um, I believe David poured a lot of his life into Solomon and preparing him and training him. Let me give you one example of that. Go to Proverbs chapter 4 real quick. Hold your place in Psalm 1. We'll be right back there momentarily. Proverbs chapter 4. Solomon, of course, is the one that wrote the book of Proverbs, right? But... The first, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed this about the book of Proverbs, but most of the time when you think of Proverbs, you think of, you know, just a series of short 
sayings of wisdom and, and so on, but you realize the first nine chapters are basically lengthy stories, lengthy chapters that go together. They're, they're unlike from chapter 10 on. You have the, you know, the short snippets, but the first nine chapters are long dissertations, if you, however you want to, that go together. But notice in chapter 4, all right, notice this begins, Hear ye, children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me, his father, Solomon's father, who was who? David. Taught me also and said unto me, let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth, forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee, love her, and she shall keep thee. And I, wisdom is the principal, principal thing, therefore get wisdom with all thy getting, get understanding, and it goes on, all right? But in essence, whose words are those? David's to Solomon. And again, I think, I think David realized, you know, his, his failures in a lot of respects. And again, the marks that you see in David is when he realized or it was pointed out to him or whether he self-realized or whatever, when he was wrong, his heart was to make it right. And I, I, I think that that's one of the examples of David is his... Family, yeah, he had a messed up family in a lot of ways and in a lot of instances, things you could point to, but I think that there was a point that David realized and, and he tried his best from that point on to make things right and to, to go the right direction in that. I think you can see that example in Solomon. Again, we, we think of Solomon, we give him the credit for praying to the Lord and asking for wisdom when God gave him the opportunity to ask for any one thing, but what did David tell him? Above everything else, you need to get wisdom from God. I mean, so anyway, that's just a, an example, again, of some things to me that stand out about David. Now, when you think of the Psalms, all right, the Psalms, 150 Psalms that were probably collected over a period of about maybe close to a thousand years, if you count like Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses, for instance, all right, Moses would have lived around 1400 BC, and so... Uh, counting Moses' lifetime up through probably the the uh, uh, the end where the where you know the last of the Psalms and so on, uh, probably close to a thousand year period, nine hundred years, something like that, that the Psalms were 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 collected because they weren't all written at the same time, obviously, uh, and and that. In fact, there are five major divisions in the Book of Psalms, and uh, again. A lot of you may be familiar with that, but uh, they're often called the books, five books of the Psalms, book one, book two, and so on. But uh, those divisions kind of seem to break up in a, in a chronological way as well. Um, for instance, the, the first 41 verses, one, Psalm 1 through 41 are, are the first book. Psalm 42 through 72 are the second book. Psalm 73 through 89 are the third book. Psalm 90 through 106 are the fourth book. Psalm 107 through 150 are the, the fifth book. Now, 
when you when you break these down and look at them and and look at the uh, the authorship of these and so on, the human writers. Of course, we we believe God was the the author, but the human writers in Book One, which consists of forty one Psalms, thirty seven of them are clearly attributed to David. Four are anonymous. They're not they're not claiming any human writer, and, and I think those are one and two, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, there's no human writer attributed to those, and then Psalm 10 and 33, I think, are the other four. So of those, 37 of them are attributed to David. Now, there's others attributed to David later on, but the, the prevailing thought among Old Testament students is that you know these were arranged in different times, collected. So in other words, the first book was very very much together, kind of in David's lifetime, probably collected by Solomon and, and so on. And then ultimately at the end, Ezra, the scribe, is probably the one that, that finished up those collections So in different periods of time. And you can see different emphases in, in some of these groupings as well. And uh, For instance, again, in the first book, David wrote most all of them. He may have written the other four, they're just not attributed to him in, in as far as uh, the title. Uh, in, in book two, 18 of those, there's 31 psalms there, 18 of those are attributed to David. He's still the major contributor. But Korah, or the sons of Korah, there's seven psalms that are attributed to them. Now, who does anybody remember who Korah was? This isn't the same Korah that back in Moses' day was one of the ones that rebelled. All right, that was one. But in David's time, Solomon's time, Korah was one of the ones that was appointed as a singer in the temple, all right, for the temple worship. Now, of course, and another thing, you think about David, all right, he, he organized the Levites, and these all would have been Levites of the tribe of Levi because they were the ones over the, you know, the family of Aaron were priests of the tribe of Levi, but that all the tribe of Levi was devoted toward the service of the Lord. The tabernacle, they're the ones that had to carry the tabernacle around as Israel traveled uh, in the wilderness and so on. But then once uh, Jerusalem was picked by the Lord and named, this is the place where I'm going to put my name, right? And then, of course, the temples built. The, the Levites were the ones that, that carried on the, the worship in the temple, uh, and David is the one that organized the Levites into 24 courses, they were called. The priests were also organized into courses. Now, a cor uh, you know, in time, you think of it, there were many, many priests, and there were only so many things that the priests did. And so you know, they had to take turns, so to speak, and David's the one that organized all of those things. David obviously was a, was a great administrator and, and organizing people into things and so on not just for wars, but for other peaceful things. And worshiping God was one of those. He organized the sons of Korah into 24 courses that led in the temple worship. They were singers. And the, again, that second book of Psalms is mostly attributed to probably songs that they were responsible to sing in the temple uh, and in the Lord's worship. And then again, there's, there's, we can keep taking time, and I'm probably taking too much time on this, but book three, only one of those psalms is attributed to David. That's the least of any of these five uh, that, that are attributed to David, but there's 17 psalms in that group. Eleven of them are attributed to Asaph, who was uh, 
uh, he was also a Levite and was part of the a leader in, in uh, worshiping the Lord and singing and so on. About 11 to him and only three to the sons of Korah, but there's also one to Ethan and Heman, who were both, again, part of that Levitical order of worship there. Um, and none of those psalms are anonymous. All right, book four, two only are attributed to David, only one and one to Moses. Psalm 90 fits into that one. And then 14 of those are anonymous. So most of the, the, the fourth group are anonymous. And then in the fifth group, book five, 15 are attributed to David, uh, one to Solomon, and um, 28 are anonymous or not, again, not attributed to any particular person. Uh, and so anyway, of those, of those, the total number of Psalms then, of course, 150, 73 are clearly attributed to David, 12 to Asaph, 10 to Korah, 1 to Moses, 2 to Solomon, 1 to Ethan, 1 to Heman, and 50 are anonymous, all right? So again, part of the reason I'm just bringing that out is, again, talking about David and how he was so, uh, it's like it was so much a part of him that the Lord is worshipped, and uh, that's what much of the Psalms is about. Uh, you know, and 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 we learn we can learn a lot about David's life as well. You know, besides the the books of history, we can learn a lot of his life from the Psalms and how he, uh, you know, he he relates to us things about his life. And it, it's interesting that David again, he's one of the most transparent people in all the Bible when it comes to how. Uh, I think you use the word candor, you know, when the, when the, because again, the Bible, unlike other books, you know, that are written, I mean, we see the bad of people as well as the good. That's not normal, by the way. Again, that, that is another indication that it's from God because again, he's, he's letting us see the whole picture, the good and the bad, because uh, we need to see that. He's not just giving us the rosy picture of everything. And but with David, he's one of the most transparent people in all the Bible because, again, great things we see of him, but yet some terrible things we see of him. But you think about throughout many of the Psalms, his heart cry. I mean, he's in, he's in a predicament. I mean, Psalm 3, for instance, which we, if, if we have time uh, in the next week or so, we might look at that one. But notice the title of it if, it, if it, if your Bible has these titles there. But it says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. I mean, and you read that psalm, there's just a heart laid bare there of his, his crying out to God for help and the distress and the, I mean, you think of the betrayal that, that David felt and faced in his life, uh, not just from Absalom, but from a lot of others. And I mean, just, so what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is the psalms lay all that out for us. There is a, you know, there's a wide variety. There's some high crescendos, wonderful things, but yet there's some terrible things of life that are shared there as well. And, and that's why that one thing that I read to begin with, that's why a lot of people identify with it because it's just, it lays it all out. And you can, you know, everybody's life's like that. If you, if you think about your life, surely there's some, there's some wonderful blessings and, you know, some things you really are glad and excited about. But yet if, if, you know, if we're honest about it, there's some pretty terrible things humanly speaking, that are involved in our lives as well. Now, the good thing is, of course, God can take, as Romans 8 says, all of those and work them out for good in our lives. And again, I think the Psalms help illustrate that for us because of what we see in these. And so, 
the Psalms, again, they're just, it's a, it's a, to me, it's, it's a, uh, it has become a wonderful part of the Scriptures to me. And uh, I, uh, again, of recent years, have really come to appreciate the Psalms in a greater way than I ever did before. And I already mentioned this, but, you know, some of the miscellaneous things here, there, there's more quotations from the Psalms in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. And a count by the man R.E.O. White, not familiar with him, but he found 201 quotations and 273 allusions. In other words, not direct quotations, but kind of looking back and saying, you know, David said this or something to that effect. And it may not be a direct word-for-word quote, but just kind of referring to what they the, the gist of something. So that's, uh, what, 474 references from the Psalms in the New Testament directly. And as I said, out of 150 Psalms, 120 are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. So that's the, the vast majority of, of the book as far as the, the content of the book as well. It's not just everybody's quoting the same thing. It's, it's spread out quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot of things about the Messiah, by the way, that we learn from the Psalms as well. Although probably, you know, most people would say the Psalms aren't written primarily for a doctrinal purpose. There is a lot of doctrine that you can learn uh, from, from the Psalms. And um, again, um, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, right, that the, the Jews... Uh, used and held on to and, and that is still looked at today uh, consisted of three main sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, sometimes the writings were just referred to as the Psalms. In other words, it was kind of inclusive of all of them. In fact, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Psalms is the first book in that category. They're in a different order than our Old Testament books. But uh, it's the first book, the chief book of the writings. And so uh, you remember on the, in fact, I, I had marked a couple places I was going to mention here. But in, in uh, Luke 24, uh, the day, you know, on the day, the resurrection day, Jesus, remember, he appears to two going back to Emmaus. And he comes alongside and, and uh, you know, they're, they're talking and he kind of comes up and says, hey, what you talking about, this kind of thing. And. And um, then, then um, in fact, I believe Pastor Brinker referred to this passage in talking about the Bible in recent, uh, recent Sundays here and about their hearts burning, you know, because God's Word makes an impact. But, but it says there, you know, if I can find the verse again, in verse 25, Jesus says to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, all right, prophets, sometimes, again, that's just a kind of a general reference to the Old Testament, but uh, all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27 says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, so Moses would be the law, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's to the two on the, way to, uh, the road to Damascus. And then later that evening... That resurrection evening, as Jesus appeared to the apostles in the room where they were, um, he said unto them in verse 44, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. 
There's a lot in the Psalms about Christ, about Messiah. And uh, Jesus referred to those uh, probably on numerous occasions, uh, but referenced at least a couple times in that regard. And so all of that said, look at Psalm 1. And I just want to briefly look at this psalm because I, I think it's interesting that this psalm appears first yeah, because it's in some ways it's a lot unlike the other psalms. A lot of the psalms are very personal. You know, the writer's expressing uh, things based on a personal experience. Many of David's psalms are that way. Uh, as, as mentioned, Psalm 3, you know, it's, it's based on his situation with Absalom and, and that, right? But Psalm 1 is a very, what I would call a generic psalm. It's, it's a psalm that just lays out, it's that sits at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, and it lays out, really, the distinction in life of, of two people. And really, you know, God sees everybody in one of two ways. You're aware of this. I mean, how does God see people? He doesn't look at people as black or white or red or yellow or green or purple or polka dot or whatever it is, you know. Uh, he looks at people as either they have a relationship with him or they don't. They're either saved or they're lost. And um, many times in doing evangelistic Bible studies with people, we, you know, we try to spend some time looking at some of those comparisons because you want people to, to see how God expresses his view of an unsaved person. They're called enemies of God. They're alienated from God. They're unforgiven. They're unrighteous. I mean, and, but on the flip side, there are people that, that uh, are described as just the opposite of that in the Scripture, people that have been made righteous. There are people that are forgiven. There are people that are accepted before God. I mean, just the opposite. And so when, when you know, God sees people one of two ways, and this psalm lays out, really, in fact, it's, it's been titled different things by different people. I just call this the tale of two ways, because that's really what it is. And in, in introducing the whole book of Psalms, it just lays out, all right, you know, in life, there's two ways you can go. You've you got a choice, which, you're gonna, you know, which way you're going to go. You can go this way or that way, all right? Uh, but here, notice, let's read it, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about with that. But blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now notice verse 4. The ungodly are not so. All right, so now you see a comparison to that good way, right? Now, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, now notice here the, the direct antithetical, I guess you'd say, parallelism here, laying them side by side and showing the difference. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Two ways. And um, it, it, when, you, when you consider this, you can, you can think of this psalm in a couple different ways. I mean, it start, what's the very first word of verse 1? Blessed. 
which would you say that's a positive word or a negative word obviously it's a positive word all right and and the point is the psalms begin by laying out if you want to say what it's like or how to have i i, I guess you could word it different ways blessings of god on your life how does a person have a happy life the word blessed means joyful content happy although you know happiness i i, I kind of cautiously use that word because happiness is more an emotional response to circumstances you know joy is according to the new testament is the part of the fruit of the spirit it's some it's a work of god in a person's life right it's not it's not a reaction to something it's a state that a person you know it's fruit from god it's something god works in our lives and so and interestingly enough, in some of the verses you're familiar with, for instance, Philippians 4.4, uh, 4. what's it say? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now, to rejoice doesn't necessarily mean be happy, but you can be joyful in spite of difficult things. That's, again, that's one of those easy preaching, hard living things. That's, that's easy, easy to say. Not always easy to live. But the, the difference is, again, joy is a, is a result of God working in our lives. It's a result of us submitting ourselves to God. It's a result of being surrendered to the Holy Spirit and Him having His way in our lives. All right? Again, happiness. You, something, something nice could happen and you're, you could have in your flesh uh, even uh, you know, an immediate reaction of, yes, that's great. You know, but there's a difference between that and the idea of a, a deep-seated contentment and joy that can be in your life because of the Lord's working, all right? And this is talking about that more than just a happy, ah, yes, thing. It's joyful, contentment. And it, it, the word also has the idea of it's a result of God blessing a person. It's a result of God working in a person's life. Again, it's not, not just a reaction to something, but blessed. So, you know, if we want to go Joel Osteen's route and say, do you want to have a, the best life ever? <laughs> well, here's the, the secret to the best life ever is in Psalm 1, in some general principles, right? But there are things that a lot of people won't ever, you know, Joel Osteen will never mention, of course, and uh, things that a lot of people don't, don't like to look at. So note it, there's really three principles here, I think, that describe the blessed person. Three principles that talk about being in the right way here. Uh, and then there's some other things brought up about the wrong way that are used to contrast that. Now, of course, we're warned in the Scripture that, uh, in fact, twice in the book of Proverbs, uh, I probably have a reference here, Proverbs 14.12, and then the other reference is 16.25, but twice in the book of Proverbs, you'll find the same words that say, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man. But how's the rest of it go? But the end thereof are the ways of death. And, you know, it's so prevalent in our society that, you know, this, this idea, well, you know, follow your heart. Do, do what you think's right. Do the, and 
And that's just like the book of Judges. Two times in the book of Judges, you'll find the statement, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And you find a lot of mess that's, core, that's connected with that, right? And, and that's the problem, is most people want to go their own way. And the Bible lays, again, there's not a lot of specifics here in this psalm, but there's three general principles here about this right way. So let's, let's uh, talk about these real quick here in the, in the few minutes we got left. But blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Verse 1, that's the first principle here. And, and for alliteration's sake, which sometimes it's easier to remember things, okay? Not always. But you can think of the word separation because these are, there's negative statements here. The, the way it's worded, it's in a negative sense, all right? It's telling us something we should not do, all right? Uh, so separation. There are things that we should stay away from if we want to have a blessed life. If we want to be in the right way, following God and his will in our life and so on, there are things obviously we need to avoid. Not everything, not every road's going to lead to Rome, you know? I mean, not, every, not everything you, every path you can walk in life is going to take you down the same, the same, to the same destination, I guess is the way I want to say it. But the truly best person is one who steers clear of the lifestyle of the ungodly. In that um, chapter in Proverbs that we referred to earlier there, chapter 4, you'll see a lot of emphasis in that chapter, particularly in verse 20 on, about, you know, keep your eyes right on. Don't, don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Just stay straight. And I, I paraphrase a little bit in that, but you're probably familiar enough with the verses to, to know what, uh, what I'm referring to there. But here you have some statements of saying that the person that's blessed is a person that doesn't do certain things. They're avoiding certain things. And because there's a lot of things we can do that are going to, uh, again, bring heartache and, and all of that. And I think David would attest to that. You know, there are, there are mistakes David made in his life. And, but again, the, the thing that to me stands out about David is once he you know, realized he was wrong in something, it, it appears to me that he did everything he could to, to write that, to go, you know, to not do it again, to go the other direction and so on. And, uh, and, and that's, by the way, that is a mark of a child of God. Do they sin? Do they fall? I mean, even in Proverbs, I can't think of the exact reference now, uh, it says, uh, a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. I mean, Christians do stupid things. I've done a lot of stupid things as a Christian. Uh, you know what I mean? But the point is, that's not what characterizes a Christian. And again, when you think of David, to me, I don't think of adultery and murder. Some people do, I guess, but because I don't think that is fairly what characterizes David's life. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that tried to please God. He had some, he had some bad moments in his life, but... The, 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 the characteristic of David's life was he was in pursuit of God. And uh, there's a lot of things we could say, you know, and make excuses for him or whatever, but uh, he didn't have all the scriptures that we have. 
I mean, there's, there's a lot of things about, about that, but the b bottom line is, again, I, I, believe, I believe that David was a man that really, he wanted to please God with his life, and he wanted others to be involved in that, and that's what much of the Psalms are about. But uh, you have here, the, the, the truly blessed person is one who steers clear of the lifestyle of the ungodly. We don't live like the world, right? There's three things mentioned here. The counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, and uh, not walking in the counsel of the ungodly. There's an action and an and a idea associated with both of these. Not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, not standing in the way of sinners, not sitting in the seat of the scornful. Notice the, in, in the actions, notice the progression there from walking to standing, to sitting. Now, I'm not going to talk much about that right now, but just it's interesting that that's the case. He says, not in the counsel of the ungodly. What's counsel? Advice or, you know, the influence. And so, again, we need to do what we can to avoid the influence of the ungodly. There's a lot of ways that people just open themselves up to the influence of the ungodly, but God's people need to avoid that as much as possible. Now, living in this world, you're not going to be able to 100% avoid it because it's all around us. This world is saturated with that. But we need to be careful, and I think part of that walking, standing, sitting is, you know, it's when we stop and start to even consider and listen that we get in trouble. And we need to just, we need to just keep on walking by. And uh, keep as Proverbs 4 says, keep our eyes straight on, all right? And, and so you, you see these three things here, right? But notice, I want, I want to move to the, the positive thing here, but the, let me read this statement, then I will. Far too many Christians live spiritually frustrated lives because they're following the influences of the ungodly rather than really following the influence of God through the scriptures, right? And obviously a Christian who is not, in the will of God, and by that I'm talking about the moment-by-moment moment leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, obedience to Him, submission to Him, surrender to Him, the person who, the, the believer who's not in that situation will be frustrated. It, it just, that's the truth, that's the case. I can tell you from personal experience, I can tell you from the Scripture, that's the case. And there's no, there's not joy in that. The blessing is when we're following God and we're not listening to those influences. All right, we're pat, you know, again, we just keep on walking. All right, now notice verse two. All right, but, so he doesn't do this, but, now this is, this is uh, I think, good here. Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. <clears throat> and, and then goes on, but. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, keep in mind here, uh, it says his delight is in the law of the Lord, all right? Specifically, the law is a portion of the Old Testament, but it also, and, and, and I think that if you look and start talking about that, because obviously the words that are used are used on purpose and so on, but I think as well, it's fair to say that this is a reference, generically speaking, to the Word of God because when this psalm was written, for the most part, the, the assembled scriptures that were in existence was basically the law, all right? It wasn't, you know, a whole lot of the Old Testament probably assembled at this point. And so uh, that 
it, I believe it's fair to say, again, this is just a, an emphasis on not just the law and that only, but on the word of God, all right? And so notice what it says, though. His delight is in God's word. His delight. The, uh, I mean, truly delighting in something, all right? Think of it in, in your life. What do you delight in? You don't have to answer it out loud, but just what brings delight to you? According to this verse, for the blessed man that's being talked about in this psalm, it's the word of God that brings delight. For some people, it's Krispy Kreme donuts, you know? <laughs> I'll, I'll admit, they taste good, <laughs> at least for a while. Uh, I, I guess if you eat enough of them, they kind of uh, get a little old. But, uh, but again... What, you know, delight would have the idea of, of a genuine love for something. And uh, this word is used in places and has the connotation of like the, the tender affection and love that like a mother has for a newborn baby. Something, I mean, just that genuine, just heart-knit love that's there. And uh, we ought to... If I didn't mention it, the second word here that we're talking about, first one was separation. There's things we got to avoid if we're going to be on the blessed way. But secondly, saturation. We need to delight ourselves in the Word of God. We need to saturate ourselves in the Scripture. And it's not that the Bible replaces God, because I, I, it is possible, perhaps, for someone to be idolatrous toward the Bible. I, I, but but the point is, the Bible is our how we know about God. The Bible is, you know, I mean, how do, how do we as human beings know about God? It's only through what he has told us about himself and his word. And so the Bible in that sense is our connection with him. And, and if, you know, ultimately we, we are delighting in God, okay? And Christ ought to be the focus for us, but it's God's word is how we're gonna, is how that's gonna be. And so his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Notice that, meditates in the Bible. The word meditate, now the way the word meditate's used today, you know, people, you know, and I'm not even going to attempt it, but like sitting down cross-legged, you know, um, and yoga or whatever. In fact, meditation as a so-called practice is a very popular thing in our society, and but it's not the same thing as meditation in the scripture, all right? The word meditate, as it's used in the Bible, simply means to think about something, to focus your thoughts on something, to, to saturate your mind with. The person who's blessed, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and it's so much so that that person is thinking about God's word when. What does verse 2 say? Day and night. In other words, all the time. We ought to be thinking about God's word. And, and not just like facts, you know, oh, how many verses are in the Psalms? Or, you know, I mean, but we ought to be, what does this mean? What does God want from me? I mean, you know, how can I please God? And I, I believe very definitely you can see that trait in David's life of how can I please God? What can I do to please God, to lift him up. And I believe that's why he desired to build the temple, why he 
why he, when he was told by God, nope, you can't do it, your son's going to build it, David put his energies then into preparing everything so it would be, how's it worded, and I can't think of the reference, but there's a, a description of the temple that it was wonderfully magnificent. Magnifical. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting description. But, and I believe that is, and again, it's not necessarily attributed there to David's preparation, but I believe a lot of that is, that was David's desire. He wanted that temple to be something so that people would realize God was something. It would magnify him. And by the way, that, that's our responsibility in this life. Uh, one, uh, a verse that I've all often admired, if you want to say, is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. And now I can't even think how it starts, so i got to turn there. I have that trouble anymore. They're in there. i just got to kind of like kickstart them or something, you know. But uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, if I can get there. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, so, uh, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. Christ magnified. What does it mean to magnify something? Now, can you make Christ any bigger? I mean, in, in a literal sense, no. But the point is, you want Christ to look big to everybody else. You want your, and Paul was saying, he wanted his life to be such that it, magnified Christ, that it showed the glory of Christ, that it made Christ look special to everyone else. And I think, again, you see that same trait in David's life. And in this psalm, he says that the blessed man is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, day and night. And that's kind of just a phrase of saying all the time. All right? I mean... We should strive. We should be striving to, to saturate our minds. How do we think right? I mean, think about that. Romans 12 talks about the renewing of our mind. How, I mean, how's, how does a person's thinking change? Well, it's by getting the right things in there, and that's going to be through the Word of God. Um, I think I even mentioned last week in, in context to something. I don't remember the context now, but, you know, it's frustrating sometimes that you think about these things that you have done or I mean you, in other words you can't forget them but you can you can put a lot of stuff on top of it so that hopefully you're not seeing it and thinking about it you're hiding it in your mind you know what I'm saying I mean in other words you get enough of God's word in there it can cleanse your thinking and and all doesn't mean it you know will never be brought up again or whatever but uh we need saturation of God's word in our mind. Now, the third principle, you can see it particularly in verse 3, but really throughout the whole rest of the psalm here, 3 through 6, you see, because it's contrasting the ungodly here as well, for the purpose of demonstrating what the way of the godly is like. It says in verse 3, He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And then down at the verse 6, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, all right? Um, <clears throat> but third word, 
third principle here is security. The person who is avoiding, who's separating from what doesn't need to be followed and is saturating with what he does need to follow, the word of God. And again, these are general. There's not like specifics specified here, but general principles, all right? It's going to result in security. How can you be a stable Christian? Again, doesn't mean you'll never sin again. But how can you be? But do you realize that at any given moment, you don't have to sin? God gives grace. He gives uh, what he provides what we need so that in any given situation, any, any given temptation, whatever, we don't have to sin. We can avoid that sin. We can avoid not thinking the way we shouldn't and so on. But the, these, you know, avoiding and then saturating, all right, separating, saturating, that's the key, just general principles, that's the key to, to that. But it results in security. Notice the description there in verse 3. This person who's not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, not standing in the way of the sinners, not sitting in the seat of the scornful, but he's delighting himself in the law of the Lord. The law, the law of the, God's word is his delight. And he's meditating in it day and night. That's what he's purposefully thinking of. And, and perhaps because he's purposefully thinking of it all he can, the result of that is he is subconsciously thinking of it as well. If subconscious is the right word, but hopefully you understand what I mean by that. But the result of that is he's going to have security in his life. I'm not talking about eternal security, but, but he's going to have a secure life. He's going to have stability in his life. He's going to be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. That tree brings forth his fruit. Why? Because where he's at, he's getting nourishment and so on, right? And uh, he's bringing forth fruit, and <laughs> his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I liken... When I first studied this psalm once and first preached on it a long time ago, his leaf. How do you how do you recognize trees for the most part, like what species of trees? I mean, there's different ways, and some people can tell by the bark and all this. But, I mean, the most part is by the leaves. That's how I mostly recognize trees, the ones I do recognize anyway. But, and, and in a way, you can think of that as kind of like his testimony, right? That's what everybody sees, the leaves. Kind of like that's his testimony, all right? But he's going to have a, a solid testimony because he's prosperous spiritually. He's, he's like that tree that's planted by the rivers of water. He's bringing forth his fruit, his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You can see his planting, his patience, his persistence, his prosperity uh, brought out in these verses here. But notice, then we have verses 4 and 5 and then the end of verse 6 that bring a contrast in here again just to reiterate and show uh, this security, right, by showing a, a, the opposite of it. The ungodly are not so. So the person that's going his own way, who's thinking, you know, trying to follow his ways and not God's ways, there's no stability to that person. I mean, you can think of that in people that are all whacked out in, in doctrine, not following the Bible. They're, they're coming up with their own ideas. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. And, and that. Uh, the Bible talks about, you know, we're to be mature, Ephesians 4, so we're not blown about by every wind of doctrine. 
and I got to hurry here. But uh, but he says in verse four, he's the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Chaff is just something that just blows. It's there's nothing to it. It's just puff, <laughs> you know. And they're not there's there's no stability there. All right. So as we close, think about that. I mean, if we wanna if we wanna have a blessed life, all right. Obviously, we need to be separated from what we ought to be separated from. We need to be saturated with God's word. And that brings about security in our lives. If we're striving to live God's word, obviously we'll, we'll have good results in our lives for that. And that's a lifelong thing because there's nobody that knows all of God's word. I mean, you know, it's a lifelong pursuit of learning this. And, and, but I think, again, that's the, one of the marks you see of David. When he found something out that was wrong, he did his best to make it right to turn from it, acknowledge it. He didn't hide things, you know, only during that time when he was away from the Lord and Nathan confronted him finally, and he lays it out. But his, his, his heart was to do what was right. That ought to be a challenge to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, portion of your word. Help us uh, in the next hour to uh, uh, just follow what you have for us from your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For his sake we pray. Amen.